From the offices of the Tribeca Film Institute in Lower Manhattan, this is TFI Live. I'm Jason Gracio, and welcome to our November podcast. Uh, you're probably either driving to your Thanksgiving dinner or you've just eaten and about to pass out, so you can listen to us now as you fade away. But uh, no, seriously, it's a very fun show we have in store, and we're going to kick things off um, with a uh, film that you've probably heard a lot about. It's in the award season chatter. Um, it's called The Imitation Game, and um, we have uh, the screenwriter and executive producer of the film with us, Graham Moore. Graham, hello. Hi, thanks for having me here. Yes, yes. So it's um, the film is a TFI Sloan filmmaker fund supported project. So we've um, uh, you know been tracking it for a while, and um, obviously um, it's been doing very well. So congratulations uh, to you for that. Thank you so much. We appreciate the support. Yeah, but. I mean, for for you in general, I mean, this is a story that's been in your head for a lot of years. Uh, you know, the script showed up on the blacklist, um, I believe it was like 2011. What was the attraction? I'm sure you get this all the time, but what is the attraction to Alan Turing? Yeah, um, you know, uh, Alan Turing was the sort of inventor of the modern computer, um, guy who cracked the Enigma code during World War II before being... Um, sort of cruelly persecuted for his government after the war um, for for the sort of quote-unquote crime of being a gay man at a time when that was uh, literally illegal in Britain. Um, and, you know, for me, I was this... I was fortunate enough to know Alan Turing's story from a pretty young age. Like, I knew about him when I was a teenager. Um, when, I was, when I was a teenager, um, before I ever thought about writing, um, I was this... Um, sort of tremendous computer nerd. I thought I wanted to be a computer programmer. I went to space camp. I went to computer programming camp. Um, I thought, um, yeah, computer science engineering is sort of what I wanted to do. And I think among among kind of uh, awkward tech-minded kids without a lot of friends in high school, um, Alan Turing is sort of a patron saint. I mean, he was sort of the outsider's outsider, this, this guy who never fit in in his own time but precisely because he didn't fit in, was able to sort of see the new the world in ways that no one else had and conceptualize these fantastic ideas that no one else had thought of. Um, and so his story had always been this sort of tremendous inspiration for me. And then when I got older, um, and I, be, I turned out to be kind of not very good at computer science, so I became a writer. Um, and uh, after becoming a writer, uh, you know, I'd, I moved to LA, and I remember I sort of always wanted to kind of tell his story on screen. Um, I always wanted to write about him. You know, his his story had been told really beautifully on the page in a bunch of wonderful biographies. Um, there was a beautiful play in the late 80s called Breaking the Code by Hugh Whitmore. Um, but there'd never been sort of a full-on, like, narrative cinematic treatment of his story. And I thought it was a story that so deserved to be told um, on film because it's such an amazing true story and I, I wanted more people to know it. It was kind of this secret history of World War II, a secret history of computer science. Um, and so about once a y every year or so, I would kind of call up my agents and be like, hey guys, um, there's this movie I really want to write about a gay English mathematician in the 1940s. And here's the kicker. Um, he kills himself at the end. And you can see all the agents at CAA just had dollar signs flash before their eyes when I said that. It was like, oh my God, that's going to be a huge hit movie. Um, no, that's not what they said. They were like, that's the least commercial thing we've ever heard. No one will ever make that. No one will ever finance that. No one will ever be in that. Um, please don't write that. Um, and, and also someone had kind of tried to, uh, I guess, make a film out of out of the story, or at least out of breaking the Enigma code, called the movie called Enigma yeah. by Michael Acted, which was kind of like the worst thing you could possibly do to try to like... <laughs> you know, 
highlight this man that had done this work would because it's not really about him but it's about kind of the the story that surrounds what he did yeah and it's not very well done so (laughs) you know i don't i I don't want to talk shit about michael apted like um, he's an amazing director um and i actually really i like enigma as a movie a lot um there's a lot i actually really like it as a movie i think it conjures bletchley really well i think it's as as a film i think it's really really well made i think it's great um what's sort of curious about it is it doesn't really have like it's 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 totally sort of divorced from history like it's not interested in telling the real story at all so they make their version of turing has a different name he's called tanner um and he's straight first of all and so he um has he's sort of embroiled in this love triangle um with uh kate winslet another woman and it's you know uh this sort of heterosexual love triangle so um and, and he's very different from turing and sort of the way they sort of show the code breaking is very different from how it was actually done so um we wanted to, um, but it, is, it does, I mean, it's a good movie and it conjures Bletchley really, very well. So so there had been that. Um, but I think, you know, generally when people sort of hear like mathematicians on screen, it, it, it's an uphill battle. Um, you know, it's not the most obviously cinematic of things, but it was such, a, such an amazing story. And then um, our story of making the movie is that w- one day I was, um, I happened to be at a party um, in LA and I don't even know, it was at the home of a woman named Nora Grossman, who's our producer. Um, and she's, um, you know, she's my age. She's in her thirties. She'd never produced a film before. Um, she'd been working in TV and I kind of overheard her talking to a friend at a party and saying that she kind of wanted to be a producer and had just optioned her first book. She had saved up a very little bit of her own money and had, and had optioned a book. And I sort of went over and said, Oh, cheers. Congrats. Like, that's really cool. Um, congratulations for doing something outside the system. Um, what's the book about? And she said, Oh, it's this biography of this mathematician. You've never heard of him. And I said, well, I know a little bit about math. Who is it? And she said those fateful words, um, Alan Turing. And so I sort of, yeah, I instantly launched into this like completely insufferable 15 minute monologue that was like, Oh my God, I've dreamed about this since I was a teenager. I'll, this is how the movie starts. This is how it ends. Like I know everything about it. I'll, I'll write it on spec. I'll do it for free. I don't care. Just like, please let me be involved in this. Please let me be involved in this movie. And she's like inching back away from me. Like, who is this psycho? How did he get in my kitchen? Who invited him to this party? Um, and so, um, uh, little did i know actually they had uh so she told me she was like oh we have all these other writers who are pitching on it and maybe you can come in and pitch in a few weeks and blah blah blah. which turns out in hindsight to be a total lie she uh had no other writers no one wanted to do it um much less on spec um but she totally made me come in and pitch um to her and her producing partner ito um and i can tease them about this now because uh yeah we've made our great it all worked out great and they're some of my best friends um and had you written the sherlockian by this point this was right before um my first novel was called the sherlockian um and that came out at the um the end of 2010 so this was a few months before the sherlockian came out it was kind of um i was getting ready to leave for new york actually to sort of start doing press stuff for sherlockian and i was you know, at that point, I had sort of no career to speak of in feature films. So, um, and I had this book that was coming out. So I was kind of like, okay, well, maybe I'll just stay in New York for a while. Maybe I'll move back to New York and um, keep writing books because I really enjoy writing books. Um, And, uh, but then it was like, okay, there's this opportunity to, to sort of tell the Alan Turing story on screen and I have to be a part of it. it seems like you had this the story somewhat in your head already. I mean, it's something that you had lived with and you'd kind of been obsessing about, but there are so many layers to this guy and the story itself. I'm, I mean, it's, it's almost like a kill your darlings type thing. There are certain things that 
that are great that you're just not going to be able to get into the script, right? Sure. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, it's he lived this sort of fascinating life, and he, in his all too brief forty one years, um, revolutionized the fields of um, mathematics, cryptography, philosophy, um, uh, biology. He did all this in later in life. Uh, in the last few years, he actually did all the sort of pioneering biology work that he's not even that famous for um but among biologists it's sort of known um uh uh and so he's it's, it was this amazing life and so yes the trick was always what do you sort of focus on in a film how do you kind of conceptualize this and and the goal with a film like this is um you know it's never it's it's a it's a film so it's not the last word on alan turing it's like right. the opening of yeah, a conversation it's, it's, right yeah to make you more fascinated because that's how i was by the end i was like wow there's so much more to this guy like i want to now you know google him read up on him know like kind of what happened after breaking enigma yeah that makes me so happy to hear you say that um because that's i think it's the goal with the film you know we used to joke that we wish uh we could have like a hyperlink in the credits so you could just in the theater totally. click on it and kind Seriously. of learn more um you know and then there's sort of the other peril with a movie like this which is um you can kind of you can Wikipedia everything that happens in it, so you know it's you know spoiler alerts don't really exist. Right. Um, so it creates all of these kind of issues about how do we create tension, how do we sort of how yeah, do we I deal mean, with this? Those? Is by far not the only film even in award season right now. It's like that. I mean, Foxcatcher is the same sure. way. I mean, you do, and that's and that's another thing where a film like Foxcatcher, I know it's coming, and I was still kind of blown away when the act actually happens. You know, so I think it's just great storytelling on on your guys' part that. You make you know somewhat what the story is, but you're making it so intriguing that's like seeing it the first time. Um, I'm glad to hear you say that. Yeah, I think that was the goal. I mean, the the what we talked about a lot with that was like sort of using the film to bring the audience inside the mind of Alan Turing, which is to say that like um, we sort of talked about like experiential aesthetics. So so we wanted the film aesthetically to sort of convey like every scene is sort of shot from Alan Turing's perspective. Every scene is sort of written from Alan Turing's perspective. The story you were hearing is from his perspective. Um, so, and that was sort of, you know, and we did that, that extended to every department. Um, and it was sort of this wonderful thing that Morton, our fantastic director, um, would sort of talk about. So, for example, the camera only moves when Alan's body moves. Um, the score scores his emotion in every scene, not anyone else's. So, for example, um, late in the movie, there's a... Um, there's a sequence where you sort of see the end of the war and the actual kind of winning of the Second World War and it's all these shots of people celebrating and, you know, drunken cries and they're singing songs and raising up the Union Jack and all of that. Um, and, but Alexandra Desplat, our tremendous composer, um, writes this really beautiful um, kind of elegic score that runs underneath it because Alan is going through the sad thing in his life. And so you see it all kind of through his eyes. And that certainly extended through me and the writing. And so so the idea about tension was that you know, breaking the Enigma code for Alan, we shot it and wrote it as a thriller because to Alan, it was a thriller. Mm. He was this 27 year old plucked out of university um, and essentially hired by MI6 to be one of the top spies in Britain um, uh, charged with breaking the Enigma code, the Nazis top code. Um, And, you know, Britain in 3940 it was pretty grim. I mean, they really, it's so easy now with hindsight to look back and be like, oh, the good guys won the war. But in 3940, um, they were literally starving. Britain was having mass, uh, mass starvation, um, which we show in the film. Like they, they really thought they were going to lose. Um, and there was this kind of apocalyptic tenor in the air, um, where they have their sort of, it's very English, but they're very good with their stiff upper lips about it. And they like, 
um, did such a sort of tremendous job of kind of putting one foot in front of the other and, and going through this. But they're, you know, they thought they were going to be invaded. They thought they were, they didn't know if that invasion was going to happen, you know, tomorrow or next week, but they thought it was going to happen soon. And if it hadn't been for the breaking of the code, they certainly would have been. Yeah. We obviously have to talk about um, Benedict Cumberbatch's performance. I mean, in, in your wildest dreams, could you imagine someone taking it on with like just this type of it just seemed like he was just all in and just just really took on this character yeah he's you know benedict is so tremendous and as an actor he's like that about everything i mean it's he's no i never dreamed we'd get an actor of his caliber let me ask you this how much could he work off of to capture this guy because i've heard there was kind of like no video no audio and also a lot of this research was um for a long time classified uh, yeah, everything you just said is exactly right. So there's, we have no video of Alan Turing, we have no audio of Alan Turing. Um, we have, so we sort of all did our best to work from kind of recollections of people who were there. We have written recollections. Um, when it, and, and of course, yes, as you said, everything was classified. Um, and it sort of slowly began to trickle out in the late 70s, uh, what happened. Um, but, uh, you know, there's also a scene at the end of the film where they take all of the papers and all the records that they were ever there and they throw it all in a big bonfire and there's this huge bonfire scene um, and that really happened. There was a real bonfire where they burnt all the records of Bletchley Park. So, wow. you know, we're sort of doing our best to kind of interpolate from the scattered data points that we have. Um, so, you know, we we talked to people who'd known him. Um, we talked to a woman who'd been his secretary late in his life. We talked to members of his family. We had one of his nieces on set. Um, one of his grandnephews um, is actually an extra in one of the scenes. Um, I think wow. you can see him sort of blurry in the background. And I think, I think the most stunning testament to Benedict's performance that I've heard um, is, um, you know, a couple weeks ago we were in London and we screened the film for... Um, uh, 26 members of Alan Turing's family um, who are around. And one of his nieces who had, who she'd known him as old as 18. She's sort of the oldest of that generation and uh, who's still with us. And she, she, she'd known him when she was 18 and she has these memories of him as a kid. He like taught her to play chess and all this stuff. And she, um, uh, she came up afterwards and she said it felt like seeing her, um, her relative there uh, alive again. And that was, um, I will give Benedict Cumberbatch all the credit in the world for that. Um, he dove himself in, you know, head first, feet first, everything first. Um, just research and devotion to, yeah, getting it right. And I mean, obviously, if a film does not get made with unless it's many, many great people involved. But I mean, you are obviously the starting point. You spent a lot of years on this project. Personally, for you, how satisfying is just the attention for the film and just getting it to this point? I mean, this... This is your first screenplay, you know, you're very young, as you say, you know, getting into the business of, you know, starting this project, you know, what's the satisfaction for you in this? You know, it's been amazing to, um, it's been amazing to sort of go to screenings and sit in the audience, uh, sit with the audience watching the film for the first time. And I think the most wonderful moments that I've had are people coming up to me after screenings and they'll say, oh my God, I had no idea that any of that happened. Oh my God, I've never heard of Alan Turing before. Oh my God, I I have to go read all about him now. Um, you know, sort of like what you were saying with the, you know, the hyperlink and like clicking for more information. Like they're like, I have to go read this biography or that biography. Um, and it's just, you know, uh, such a horrible... Alan Turing was the recipient of a horrific injustice at the hands of the British government. Um, and he was kind of simply because he was a gay man, he was kind of whitewashed out of 
the history of the Second World War, out of the history of computer science, um, for a very long time. And so if if this film can, uh, you know, re resituate him as one of the great geniuses of the 20th century, um, uh, you know, that's that is like our small part, um, our, our little bit of work that we can do to uh, give him to give his legacy the tribute that it deserves. Well, Graham, we, we really appreciate the time. Um, the film is called The Imitation Game. It opens on November 28th. Um, please check it out. And Graham, all, all the best with everything. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. This is TFI Live. I'm Jason Garasio. And uh, for this segment, uh, we're going to there, there have been a lot of really interesting documentaries on the festival circuit this year, uh, but there's one in particular that you might have seen or might have heard about that is interesting in the sense that it mixes nonfiction with the romantic comedy, and oftentimes that uh, leads to disaster, but with this film, Meet the Patels, it's really well done, really funny, and also it taps into a culture that many Americans might know a little bit about, but really gets into it real well and opens your eyes. So we have uh, the star and uh, one of the directors of Meet the Patels, Ravi Patel, is here with us. Ravi, hello. Hey What's up, man? Thanks for being here, man. Yeah. Thank you for uh, waking up and doing this. You have your, co- <laughs> you have your coffee in hand. It's a cold and chilly New York day, but he's here. Yep. And um, we thank you for that. And, no, it's um, my pleasure. And, uh, you know, the film was supported by a TFI documentary fund, so um, uh, so we are happy to support it. Yeah. But um, you know that's this, why I'm here, by the way. In yeah, case there's any confusion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's not because we I don't like know that the I film said or yes you like this. us. Yeah, no, it, it has, it's nothing. Yeah, it literally was. It's actually I in the contract. Say yes to this. It's in the contract that yeah. when you sign to get the money, you have yeah. to do the TFI Live podcast. Yeah. Well, I was hoping somebody here would like offer to take me to lunch. I thought there was like a possibility for no, like, no. We've yeah. given you enough money already. <laughs> this is this is the end of the relationship yeah. after this. No, no, but. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, so th- so congratulations on the film. So. Uh, you and your sister Gita um, directed it, mm-hmm. and uh, so j- just to give people a sense, you at the film are a thirty year old guy, mm-hmm. have not found the one yet, mm-hmm. have been searching definitely, yeah. and you decide to uh, get your parents involved and do it the cultural way of that your family did it and family before before et cetera, the cultural way of finding yeah. a wife. Right. And um, that's through kind of the arranged yeah, marriage that, thing. That's how my parents got married was through the arranged marriage system. And what it was, you know, when they were growing up was, uh, you know, you'd get to the appropriate marriage age, which, you know, I think in my dad's case was like 25 or something like that. And they take you over to the village uh you know, kind of next door, you would go counterclockwise because they're all Patels. And so you want to, I guess, going counterclockwise somehow prevented incest or something, I think. And so, and that one, you could pick out, I think they said 12 girls. And then he's like, okay, well, let's not, let's not shop too hard here. You got other things to do. And, uh, found my mom. Uh, and you know, it, every one of my uncles and aunts has gotten married this way. They're all in like pretty incredible marriages. And, uh, and, and so there's been kind of a, a modernized version of this system now that, you know, when, when, you know, uh, when Indians came to America, how do they keep this system going? That was, you know, very much based upon just the proximity 
uh, of all these Patels? How do you still maintain the same system? Now let's just say not all these Patels are related. Let's let's yeah, make that clear. Saying, yeah, yeah. And you do show that in the film, but I don't want people thinking, my God, yeah, this is yeah. crazy incest. Yeah. That there are just Patels everywhere, but it's kind of all yeah. a regional thing. Yeah, your last name is last name is cast based and it's based on re- regional thing. And so the idea is that there's kind of uh, cultural similarities that make these people more compatible to each other. And so the way they keep the system going now is uh, the Patel parents in America pass around these pictures and matrimonial resumes uh, from Patel to Patel to match Patels. And when we were in India, I'm setting up the movie now. Yeah. I assume we should do this at some point. Yes, yeah. yes. Let's, so, yeah, let's, do, let's, let's do that. Yeah. So basically, I had this white girlfriend that I didn't tell my parents about for two years because of the expectations that I would always marry within the system. And then we, and then uh, I broke up with her, and we went on our family trip to India. And this is about the time that my sister picked up the camera for completely other purposes. And uh, my parents were pressuring me to get married. They wanted me to get an arranged marriage there. And I finally agreed when we came back to the U.S. that I would let them basically send me on these dates all over the country um, with these Patel girls. And, and you see a little bit of it in the trailer, but I have to break down the bio data, which... Yeah. had me rolling it's because this thing is no joke yeah. this thing is mm. a a headshot mm-hmm. not of your choosing by the way right yeah you, you were often you're kept out of this process altogether and you find out later that these profiles breaks been, down age yeah. height complexion yep. uh which i guess different is a big shades thing. of brown yes yes yeah and and that's what you go off of. And this is what this is what's fascinating to me. It's just in the profession you're and you're an actor. Is that mm-hmm. and you touch on this in the film, your love life was basically like having an agent and you on the phone with your parents going, no, no, no I can't do that, no, mom. I told you, like I'm not going to India. Like they have to be in America. Like I'm thinking, like this is he probably has phone calls half of the day with his agent and the other half of the day with his folks doing kind of the same kind of dance. Yeah, yeah. Well, the fact of the matter is my parents are like constant agents anyway. So between my actual agents and my parents, I'm in general like I'm picking and choosing which calls I want to take. I'm avoiding a lot of calls. So so you, you tour the country. You go on the uh, Patel tour. Yeah. Well, I, I guess I'm, I'm trying to think. Yeah, I'm trying to think, you know, I guess I want to know about the um, the kind of uh, the, 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 the speed date section, yeah. which uh, – what I want to know is, do people actually, from that event, talking to somebody for 10 minutes, yeah. then yes. go and get married? They do, yeah. Right, yeah. Leave, leave the room, talk to are the you parents, the, we lock this down. About, are you talking about the convention? Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, so for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, there is this thing every year, uh, it's called the Patel Convention. And basically, this is where Patels, oh these are all American-born uh, Indians, last name Patel, go to this you know, convention and the purpose is to meet someone that you might eventually marry. Uh, yeah, but you know, it's kind of a, you know, it's not as crazy as it sounds. Is that like a getting to know you and then like two weeks later, we're going to firm up like an actual one-on-one? Everyone does it their own way. So uh, generally speaking, these people are still like somewhat American where they want to date. And, um, but you know, it's a, it's a starting point just as you would at any other kind of, you know, speed dating, uh, event. Yeah. Uh, it's just a starting point. Um, but the idea is that hopefully, you meet someone that fits within this system like that your culture kind of expects you to fit into. But, you know, being born and raised in America, I feel like this was my perception of seeing the mm-hmm. movie was that um, uh, Indians that are that are born and bred in America, there's that 
that sexual attraction because that's kind of you know watching and absorbing it through you're culture sexually and everything. attracted to yeah, Indians yeah, you, that were you, born in America yeah it's not like the Indian thing where I feel like it's a connection my, my parents connected with this parent and we're going to work it out there's like another thing added where it, it's where on the American side where it has to be some kind of sexual connection. What are you talking about? I'm talking about you finding someone. There has yeah. to be a sexual connection. There it can't be, just be. Yeah. My parents. You're and saying those that's the part of that's yeah. the part of our American culture that we have tough time reconciling. Yes. With these, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, just that. <laughs> you know. The, the, I, I had an. You know, there's a version of this film that was much more academic, and during that time, we kind of spoke to all these relationship experts and blah blah blah. And one of the most interesting conversations I had was with. Um, she was she was the editor for Psychology Today, and she told me she was saying, you know, there's three major pillars to a successful relationship, and depending on what part of the country you're from, you put an emphasis on different pillars. So, or not what part of the country, what part of the world? So, if you're from, let's say, the Indian culture, you would put emphasis on these first two pillars, which are uh, compatibility and commitment. Okay, compatibility are all these things that's on that bio data, all the things that help you figure out essentially sameness, right? And that's the logic in it. The the more same you are as this other person in terms of like background and you know where you're from, the likelihood that you guys are going to be the second pillar easier, which is compat, which is commitment. Commitment, you just meaning once you decide that you're getting married, this is your team for life, so you make that team work, and this is you know you're starting this business together, so you make you know. Don't get me wrong. There's definitely a lot of Indian marriages that should not stay together. But either way, they're fairly successful. Right. For the most um, well, if you come to America, there's actually a, uh, way less emphasis on those first two pillars and a lot of emphasis on this third pillar, which is chemistry. This is this idea of love. Yes. In fact, I think you could say that in our culture, maybe even our generation, we have a bit of an obsession with this idea of love. In fact, if we don't love anything at all, if we don't love work, if we don't love another person, and the minute any of that stuff is gone, we start to question whether or not we should be there. Um, so it, it was it, it was really interesting. I mean, like that was one of the kind of enlightening uh, conversations that I got to have as you drove to this film, and you realize that you kind of need all three and a balance between all three. Um, and so, yeah, it, it was very much like how can I, how can I, because I personally want to pass on certain elements of my culture to you know my kids, but then I also want uh, all these very basic things that I acknowledge are a part of like just who I am now. Yeah, one be of them happy. being you sex. Want... Yes. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. There's nothing yeah. wrong with that. Totally. Nothing wrong with sex. Nothing. I'm all for it. <laughs> did, with doing the dates, did did any of the kind of BS meter come up of, of just like, this person is interested to me because I am no, an I, actor or because I am a... Oh, because I'm an actor? Yeah. Uh, I was always wondering if, you know, if any of them were... were attracted to you or like really feeling the vibe because they wanted kind of the lifestyle that you're in. Right, 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 right. Maybe. I don't. Did that never flare I, I just, no. I mean, I think it hurts as often as it probably helps, but I, I don't really know. I never really think that people look at me that way. I, I always forget that, but I think. Because especially with a bio data and stuff, I would, I would imagine maybe some of the girls were like, Ooh, he's an actor. Ooh, yeah, you know, yeah. I want to be in ho that Hollywood lifestyle too. So <laughs> I'm really gonna like him. Yeah, you yeah. know. I mean, look, I think, I think, you know, with traditional girls, 
there's probably like a great deal of people who are completely unattracted to that because it's so untraditional. And so the people who do end up going on dates with me, they've seen that. And it ends up definitely being a major topic of conversation because I think it's it's just a different thing. I don't think they meet people who are artists for a living. So, yeah, it's a thing. I don't know. I mean, uh, what I, I, have I have you thought about not really. Right. No, no, no. I didn't. I don't. Yeah. I don't really think about it. Yeah. So the the film's been doing great on the festival circuit. It won the Audience Award award at the Los Angeles Film Festival and getting other awards. Yeah. Um, we, we won awards at the first, I think, six festivals that's we're at. Fantastic. So yeah. what? I mean, so obviously the reaction's been great. What have you been experiencing on the sales side? What have you yeah. been experiencing of just giving this film life that people that haven't seen it on a festival Man, will it's get been to exhausting. see? It? it has been exhausting at times depressing. Um, uh, but I've learned a lot. I mean, I think, you know, you know, look, the, the film was, I don't know if you guys knew this, but the, the film was previously titled one in a billion, uh, one in a billion, this wordplay that it's about this search. Like it's about this guy's search for love. It was about my search for love billion implying, you know, the population in India. And now it's called meet the Patels. And the reason why is because we realized that the story is not about a search for love. It's a film about family. And, uh, and, and, and to that end, I think the appeal of the film, there's a couple things that I think have, is a reason why it's been so successful and why audiences have enjoyed it so much. Um, it's, it's because I think ultimately, like you can say that there's all these nuances in Indian culture and sure that's, that's interesting, but I think people are just really into it because it's just a family about, it's a film about fa family and love and everyone's kind of relating to it in their own way. It's almost like family wish fulfillment in a sense. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, like, you know, and we intentionally put all these fun, like comedic elements or entertaining elements, whether it's the animation or the Harry Met Sally interviews or the like jokes you see written on the screen. Um, you know, we wanted this film to just be fun as hell for anyone who takes it in. Um, and so from a sales perspective, you know, when I said these meetings, I'm like, I don't, I was like, I know it's a documentary, but to me, this is, this is a four quadrant family comedy. It's really hard to find movies in that space. And done well. And, and that do well. And from a sales perspective, it's been really difficult for two reasons. One, we pre-sold our TV rights before we made the movie because PBS was a funder of our film. And I, I would have taken that deal any day of the week because who would have thought the film would have sure. been this successful? You, I mean, back then when PBS invested, that was the win. Yeah. We're like, Oh yeah, great. You know, we're going to make this thing. Yeah. And it's actually going to be, there's there. a brand yeah. attached. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, of course then we took six years to make the movie, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, um, but then, you know, now all these, all these people like searchlight would be an example. They wanted to buy the movie, but then they have a pre-existing output deal for TV. So that means these studios, they already have deals with, you know, I think with searchlight, there are deals with HBO or something like that. Right. So they have to have the TV rights available. It's also part of their financial hedge when they purchase these films. And all these people, by the way, are interested in putting the film in theaters, but theaters are just, are actually the, probably the smallest part of their revenue stream. The, they buy the rights and they make their 
money, not just through theatrical, but also through transactional VOD like iTunes, through streaming like Netflix. We already had an offer from Netflix, a, a significant offer. So that's part of what we're showing up to the table with. But then we but then we can't offer TV because that's already gone. Luckily, it's in PBS's interest to work with whatever we're trying to do to to because you know the more success of the film and theatrical serves more as a marketing mechanism for the other uh, for the other verticals. So I think everyone has interest in doing it. And now there's a couple of players that are very excited. And, um, you know, I think we're going to see some real movement here. Um, in so the you're next confident week. that we, we will see Meet the Patels in theaters after its festival run? I'm confident because that's just my nature. But <laughs> is well, it, I hope so. I, here's the thing. I think I think I think at this point I feel pretty good. I mean, we we got an we got an offer last week. That's not that great, but I think I think we might end up even doing something creative. I feel very confident that you know, in a worst case scenario, you know, I can go to I can go to the I can call my dad tomorrow and be like call up some Patels and get half a million dollars. Let's put this thing in theaters. And, you know, and I've personally done a lot of kind of um, like, like, you know, with like a major theater chain and they're willing to put the film in and then various companies have offered to do, um, you know, like community events in each theater. So, I mean, I think there's a lot. Heck, with the amount of Patels out there, you can make your money back. It's the strongest marketing company in the world. I mean, that's, that's the toughest part of like sitting down in these meetings is, you know, one, it's unlike any other documentary in terms of like the market. So understandably, there's no precedent for this film. So they're like, you know, they're comparing it to films like, you know, say supersizing you. But even then, that's not a fair. And documentaries traditionally don't make money. They're very difficult investments. When they do make money, we're talking about, you know, they make like $100,000, $200,000 on their investment, um, which if I'm a film company, it's like, I I don't like, why would you do like, there's no, it's a waste of time. Um, and, And so they have a difficult time. They're like, well, this feels like my big fat Greek wedding. Great. So why don't you treat this like whatever your shittiest independent film might be? you know, as opposed to treating it like the best documentary. Um, and so it's been tough to convince them. So I think it's going to be creative, but, you know, luckily, you know, I think we have a number of celebrities. We know every Indian in Hollywood, thank God. Um, and we have a, a decent amount of friends in the media who seem excited to kind of get the word out. So, you know, and, and, you know, we've been taking email addresses at every film festival we've been at. Like I asked them, Hey, please join our Facebook page or give me your email address. And so we've done, you know, and I've been fortunate enough through, you know, TFI and like all these other organizations. It's like, you know, I've asked all these other filmmakers who have done like really cool grassroots stuff with their films. Like, what did you do to, to, to make your film so successful? And, um, you know, just learning as I go, it's, it's been, it's been equal parts frustrating, but it's also been, you know, it was the same process in making the film as it is in distributing film, which is that it was much harder and much longer than I ever expected. But in retrospect, the experience was much richer because of how, you know, we've definitely earned every, yeah. every minute and learned so much along the way. Is, are, are you, are you guys even thinking about the next one? I mean, can you even do yeah. that? Yeah. We're thinking about it a little, cause we've had a number of kind of like companies who wanted to, who want to, first of all, what are you guys going to do next? Yeah. Or people want to meet and they're like, we want to make a TV show out of this. We want, we've had like people who want to sit down and talk scripted or talk unscripted. And, um, they want to do, I mean, everyone wants to do stuff with my parents. My parents are going to be famous. They're fantastic. And they should be. Um, they're already going, I tell everyone they're already going through their Bieber phase right now. Like they're going to be douchebags in five years. They're just (laughs) soaking it up, but it's, it's the cutest thing ever. Um, 
And then, yeah, we've had some talks about uh, we've got an offer to for us to write and direct a, a scripted feature based on the doc. And but we're we're not really, um, you know, we've kind of been pushing off all those conversations because right now we're just really focused on, you know, we spent six years making this thing. So let's try to let's try to give that some let's let's try to give that a chance to live. Um, and then we'll talk about all this other stuff. But yeah, it's been it's been really uh, it's been really exciting from that perspective. And I think when the doc does, you know, finally feel like it's on the way in terms of distribution, then we'll start having those conversations. In the meantime, I think we're just enjoying the hell out of this experience with, you know, you know, the big win for making the movie was that is about my family. So we are just as you see in the film, we're like a million times closer as a result of this experience. And now we get to experience this film together going to festivals like you know Gita's filming something in India right now and you know I have I have a granola bar company that, I'm, that I run I don't know if you know about this yeah, this, yeah. We, this, we follow you guys on Instagram so we, yeah, we give you love this bar saves lives thank you um, and and so I'm not we're not always able to attend all these festivals we send my parents to them um, and when possible all four of us meet up and it's just it's been a real magical journey well well we w- wish you guys all the best and it's if if Anybody's, you know, is going to a festival and it's playing there. I highly recommend it. It's just, it, it's. I promise you, it'll be a very different film than all the other films you see at the festival. <laughs> and I'm saying that in a very good way. Yeah, so um, the yeah, film man, is called you. Meet the Patels. You can check them out at meetthepatelsfilm.com. Yeah, and our Facebook page, which is Facebook backslash Meet the Patels. Cool. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks, man. <laughs> Now's a perfect time to become a TFI member and enjoy our events year-round. Go to our membership page on our website and type in the promo code TFILIVE10 and you will get 10% off the membership price. That's TFILIVE10, all capital letters. Go to our blog for more news about TFI and the independent film world. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast at iTunes and Stitcher Radio. TFI Live Music is by Mr. Simmons. Learn more about him at MrSimmonsMusic.com. The man behind the glass is Gavin Mevius. This is Jason Garasio. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.